Coming strong with another edition of Longhorn Blitz with Horns 24-7. I am Jeff Howe. We made it. It still doesn't seem quite real, but Texas is in the college football playoff, and we are days away from Texas and Washington in the Sugar Bowl, the college foot, foot college football playoff semifinal. I'm so excited I can't even say it right. And this is our official Sugar Bowl preview here on Longhorn Blitz. Let me bring in the rest of the team that will be alongside me for the journey. He is the master of the soundboard, the drop machine extraordinaire, our lead research analyst on Longhorn Blitz, and a daily fantasy guru. He is Matt Butler. How are you, sir? Doing pretty well, man. How about you? Enjoying the food in New Orleans and a lot of work, but uh, you, you know, I'm a fat guy. Like I'm going to mix in some meals here and there, so nobody needs to worry about me missing a meal down in New Orleans. Uh, a man who, he loves his Cajun food because he admittedly has family who... Uh, Right, these are your words, not mine. Swamp people. We got some swamp people in your family. Yes, sir. Uh, on that family tree. Uh, he hails from Houston. He wears many hats. Busier than a fruit merchant. You can catch him on numerous platforms. But for the purposes of this podcast, he is our lockdown corner here on Longhorn Blitz. Lifetime Longhorn, 2002 UT All-America, 2002 semifinals for the Jim Thorpe Award. Fourth-round draft choice of the New York Giants back in 2003. Spent his NFL career with the Giants, Lions, Bears, Bucks, Broncos, and a year with the Hamilton Tiger Cats of the CFL. When he was done with football, he got himself back to Austin, Texas, and the 40 Acres, where he earned his degree. Whenever that T-ring comes back in, we will make sure he wears it proudly. Nevertheless, he's a card-carrying member of DBU. And when you get that All-American honor recognized by the NCAA, they make sure you get one of those black cards. Number 21 in your program. Number one in your hearts, Mr. Rod Babers. Thank you for the intro, brother. Appreciate it as always. And uh, yeah, man, I'm I'm excited. Who's not excited about it? Ready to get to it. Rod, a couple things I, I needed to throw your way. Uh, one, I'm going to give you the opportunity right now. I don't even know if you can keep track of all of them. But for people looking to find your analysis, uh, spreading the good word of football theory, what are the best ways to indulge in a little Rod Baber's content leading up to the Sugar Bowl? Um, oh, yeah. If you go on YouTube, On Texas Football, uh, the On Texas Football channel, it's the best way to do it. I'm on there all the time. Uh, and, of course, I do a morning show with my man E. Hogan uh, called Hook Him Up, and we're on there weekdays from 6 to 11, so five hours every weekday. Uh, man, you can go catch out some of the podcasts. I've been breaking down Texas-Washington for – for about a about close to a month now, by as long as they've been preparing for each other. Hook them nice. up. Matt, I would let you promote what you've got going on, but you're doing when you're not doing the blitz, you're doing daily fantasy. So I don't know how much that applies. But I guess if you need if you need any daily fantasy advice, hit Matt up at Butler and Austin on Twitter. And Matt, yes, Matt, you'll get people squared away, point them in the right direction. Oh yeah, for sure. We have some random fans that always will put in some uh say prop bets on Texas football, some listeners. One of the listeners that's headed to New Orleans this week actually hit me up and wondering if we were doing the show and he's hit me up about prop bets for certain players. So yeah, I'm always doing Texas research too. So if you're ever geared that way, hit me up. I'm getting it done at Horns 24 seven, uh, Texas sports unfiltered channel, but man, uh, my favorite thing we do is that I do is the Longhorn Blitz podcast. And guys, I was thinking about it, man. Uh, you guys tell me if you like this analogy. I like it. I know people will be grossed out by it, but here we go. <laughs> um, Texas football in the post-Colt McCoy era prior to this season, it's like dealing with a hemorrhoid for 13 years. 
that sometimes it's very manageable and you don't even notice it's there and things can be good. But man, when it rears its ugly head, it is painful and annoying and embarrassing and you can't even sit down and you're a mess and it just kind of comes and goes. It's off and on, but I feel like that thing's finally been removed and <laughs> Texas wow. football's moved on to greener pastures. Um, I don't know where you guys are with the hemorrhoid analogy, but that's that's kind of the best way I've I've been able to sum up what it's been like following this program in the post Colt McCoy era. Man, yeah, I mean, honestly, that's I I never thought about it from that sense, but you're not wrong. No, I'm <laughs> smiling. I'm sitting yeah. here thinking like I I I really can't speak on it because I don't have the experience. But yeah. if I had to imagine what one would be like. Oh uh, yeah, twelve years of it really sucking, and then whenever it's really good, it, yeah, that makes sense. So we we've we've uh, man, we've been through some stuff doing this podcast. We've been uh, a, a counselor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist for the Longhorn fan base. We've we've waved our pom poms. We've put pom poms in the trash can and set that mug on fire a time or two. Uh, I, I said this before, guys, and I really mean this, man. I hope Texas fans that have lived through this kind of the lost era of Texas football, I really hope they're enjoying this because I know I am. And, man, you shouldn't take being in the CFP and, and being in the national championship picture and competing for a title. You should never take that for granted. And I know I'm enjoying it. I know you guys are enjoying it. Yeah, we work and we got stuff to do, but man, I'm I'm taking a little time to to smell the roses and appreciate some of the places that we've been while following this program and where we are now. And uh that's kind of how I just want to start the show, man. It's it, we've come a long way from, you know, Rod and I yelling about, you know, Brian Harson needing to have the ball on the right hash mark to get it to Marquise Goodwin and uh, Rod, Rod, I got reminded. I I got reminded about this not too recently. Uh, the the time we had a maybe the most heated argument you and I have ever had was over Duke Thomas being a two way player. Um, oh. we went through that. Went through that oh. on the podcast and yeah, uh, I remember that. Good lord, you know the you know <laughs> five win seasons and week to week propositions and Tom Herman making guys eat burnt hot dogs and drink you know, hot Gatorade out of sweaty socks and whatever the hell they were doing over there, man. It's, it, it, this beats the hell out of the alternative, man. I'll say that. Checking out your teammates piss. Yeah. Oh yeah. Don't forget about that. Yeah, Don't man. Forget about that. Yeah. Uh, no, the UTMZ stuff where Texas is making headlines for all the wrong reasons. Um, you know, monkey monkeys and all the kind of stuff. No, all right. I'm with you. If it, It's yeah. It's uh, it has been a long, long, circuitous route to get here, but it does yeah. seem like this rebuild by Sark is for real. It does seem yeah. like it's legitimate that it's got some substance to it. Now are they gonna make the college football playoff every year? You know, I'm not saying that, but it does seem like a lot of the uh, the issues like development, uh, the issues like toxic toxicity within the culture that had plagued the program under multiple regimes. Uh, don't seem like they're going to be uh, systemic anymore within the program. And if you yeah. can just get rid of those, then Texas will be closer to, to playing to a standard, which they seem like they are. They have a good culture, and the coaches are doing a hell of a job developing the talent. 
Mm-hmm. Yep, and that when you said securitist, that's exactly what I sort of thought of because when we talked about like this era and it sort of all began with the Colt McCoy uh, shoulder injury, and I remember how numb I felt whenever Colt got hit in that play and watching because, like you said, Jeff, it's not as if you took Texas football for granted, but that decade of being there, you felt like you were always going to be there. And when Colt went down in that game, that was just sort of sort of a shock to the system that. Then there had been like, what, 13 years and like you really hadn't had anything. And like, that's why, like, whenever the same thing almost happened to Quinn in the Alabama game last year where they came out just firing, it's like, oh, wait, this team has something about it. This feels like this could be an exciting year. This could be awesome. This first quarter has gone great. And then it felt like the same thing happened to Quinn again. And we were back. Like, I hadn't had that numb type feeling as a fan from feeling success to then it just rip your heart out real quick. And then that's what makes this team this year so cool that it's the same players. So, you know, minus Rojo, Bijan, and a handful of others. But that group was able to see what it would be like to fight through injuries this year, to be able to get that ultimate, say, revenge on Alabama, even though you probably outplayed them both years. And then to have it actually pay off at the end of the year that the OU win – didn't come to bite you, which, you know, before 09, I was, it was the head-to-head being behind by .0128 in the, you know, the formula back whenever the Big 12 was using BCS as a tiebreaker and, like, how much heartbreak 08 and 09 had. And then I was like, man, I hope we don't get screwed on both ends of a head-to-head this year and the head-to-head doesn't matter again. But for Texas to overcome a Quinn injury, for the head-to-head to actually matter and then for Texas to get to this point – it really is sort of karmic from 08 and 09, how that ended. And now you get finally another chance, even though it's like 15 years later. Culture is one of those buzzwords that, man, in the, what is it, the 11, 12 seasons we've been doing this podcast, we've talked a lot about culture. And I told you guys, I think this was going into last year. I, I came to the conclusion that I'd been looking at culture the wrong way. You know, it's looking at culture as almost something you achieve. Uh, culture is something that you you obviously cultivate it, but it's something that eventually at some point you defend it. It evolves. It's this unique organism that uh, is kind of the, the life source, if you will, uh, of your program. And talking to – and, Rod, I want to get your take on this as a, as a former player. And I know you wear – talk about it. I, I say it as a bit, but it's not a bit. You do wear many hats. So why don't you put your former player hat on? I was talking to a couple of guys today at the availability down here in New Orleans, and I was asking Jatavian Sanders, and it all stems from looking at this team and, and you know, there, there's no Colt McCoy. There's no Vince Young. There's no Ricky Williams on this team. I mean, your most celebrated, decorated player is a 362-pound nose tackle. Uh, you know, you, you've gotten to this point. You've gotten to the playoff. You put yourself in a position to go win a national championship. Uh, granted, you've got trans, you've got some great talents around you. Maybe if Quinn doesn't get hurt or Jonathan Brooks doesn't get hurt, maybe you do have a Heisman finalist. But but you've gone through a lot of stuff to get to this point and, and start building this thing from the inside out. I, I've been hesitant to use this term, but when you hear Jatavian Sanders say, "Man," And it really started, somebody's asking about NIL deals, that the players talk about their NIL deals. He said, nobody talks about that stuff in the locker room. You know, it is what it is, but it's it's personal. Uh, this guy, These guys are all just all about playing football. And to hear Christian Jones say, man, if basically this team, you know, they've been through so much and had so many kind of gut punch losses 
you know, early in his time, he said at some point they kind of realized, and I'm paraphrasing here, you, know, you had to adapt the mentality of, look, man, if we don't start punching first, we are going to get punched and be on our heels. So let's start doing the punching. It, it's a team, Rod, that I think as a former player has to make you feel proud that it, it does have, and we haven't been able to say this a ton about Texas teams in the past you know, 25-ish years, really going since going back to maybe the 80s under Fred Akers in the early 80s, this is a team that does have kind of a blue-collar edge to it where they're just guys that just, they, man, they just want to win ball games at the end of the day. And whatever that is, it's about winning ball games, embracing your role, and, and going balls out. And that's something that I think, especially as a former player, Rod, you got to appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I mean, this team, I've, I've been saying it all year, they got good football character. Uh, you see that shine through all the time right there. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of great teammates are unselfish. They celebrate one another. Uh, this isn't a team that uh, doubts itself in, in critical moments. They actually, this is a team that believes. We see that when they have you know, defensive, game-winning defensive goal line stands, and we see it when, A.D. Mitchell was able to make a clutch catch to seal the game. Uh, you know, this team, when they went into Alabama and beat Alabama in Tuscaloosa, right? How, how many teams have been able to do that um, in the non-con? It's just uh, so many different times they have uh, shown that not only do they believe in themselves, they, they've they made um, most of the Longhorn Nation believers. I mean, Longhorn fans thought they'd be good. Nobody thought they'd be you know, college football playoff potential national championship good, but they are um, because I, I do believe this team plays with a a lot of uh, – they play with a lot of grit. Uh, they play with a lot of fortitude. Uh, you know, there are times when, you know, it looks – that things look grim for this team, and yet, you know, you, they find a way to make a play. Uh, they're mm -hmm. in critical moments. So you can say they're clutch because I – I do believe they're at clutch, but it's not just one guy, right? For for Washington, they got some great players, but it seems like Michael Penix has been the key to their uh, clutch gene. That he, you know, it's him, and he is the the straw that stirs your drink, and that is the case for Texas. But man, we've we've seen so many guys become that that spark, whether it be Tavondre Sweat or whether it's hell Quinn Ewers went down, and thank God Malik Murphy came in and won a couple of games for you. Whether that's uh, Jay Barron making a play, whether that's, uh, you know, A.D. Mitchell making a clutch catch, whether it's Xavier Worthy having a good game. J.T. Sanders has been that guy. Hell, when Jonathan Brooks went down, uh, you saw, mm -hmm. once again, the grit of this team. They just, you know, every time that you expect them to have one of those moments, a letdown, and I said they haven't had those because they had a loss and they lost to Oklahoma. But even the Oklahoma game, oh, man, it felt like even when that they got the field goal at the end, and they just left a little bit too much time on the clock. Uh, you know, they, they had a chance to have that game-winning drive uh, in that game, and this came up short. Uh, wasn't like the defense didn't, you know, they weren't disciplined enough, right? They uh, Sark should have called a timeout. He didn't. D the defense gave up some plays, and yet we've seen this team improve on those areas, right? Sark has started – he started calling defensive timeouts after that. <laughs> uh, literally the next game he was calling defensive timeouts this team uh, showed up and they were able to start making plays in clutch moments at the end of the game Oklahoma they lost the game defensively at the end of the game then uh, U of H and TCU uh, sorry TCU and the K-State game excuse me they win the game and making clutch plays at the end of the game defensively so I, I don't know I've just seen the growth I've seen the evolution enough to make me a believer and 
I'm not, like I said, I'm not a guy that's easily wooed or easily influenced. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a tough critic, especially when it comes to football. And this team, they've done enough to really, truly, uh, you know, open my eyes to, to their ability to make clutch plays. And I do think they have a shot to win it all. Like, yeah, and it's been very well-rounded. Like all the examples you brought up right there, right? It sort of shows like it's like at the beginning of the OU game when some things went wrong, but then what came through, it was special teams. You had a big pump block. You had a, a fake punt and a great, great play call at that point. In the Alabama game, whenever it had sort of got tight and then you see a big pick six, like a timely turnover, the defense comes through. Or after in some games, whenever the defense had gave up a – barrage of points but then you're able to get that final drive for the offense to be able to score or like when it's starting long against TCU on the road when you're coming back from injury and Quinn connecting with AD on the deep ball it's always been and if there had been like say one aspect of the team that was maybe struggling the other two aspects the special teams in the defense or the offense in the special team somebody else picked it up you never had all three units not playing well at the same time it wasn't just one bad game where everything snowballed and it almost sort of gives you idea of the mineral strength that even if things go wrong on the other side of the ball the next unit up goes out there and understands the situation and comes through with a stop or with a big play or with an impact play and we've seen it across the board and it bears out when you look at the stats like texas is one of the few teams to be ranked in the top 10 in offense and defense plus have an above average special teams unit. Like the only other teams that do that are like teams like Michigan, Georgia, Ohio state, you could say Penn state, Oregon, and not even Oregon because there's special teams in Alabama. There's like, and and Florida State, there's like literally eight teams that fit that type of parameter. So just having that well-rounded team that if two of your three units are playing well, you feel really good. And if you get them all aligned together, that's when Texas really puts the pedal down. Yeah. Before before we talk about, Rod, did you have something to say? I'm, I'm sorry. No, I, I was I, just agreeing with Matt. That's okay. Right. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No. Uh, no. Rod, I, I, do, I do want to start with you on this. Before we – we haven't talked a ton about the Texas offense, and that's most of what we'll uh, talk about this week because we spent pretty much the whole podcast last week talking about the Texas defense against the Washington offense. But I do want to hit one thing defensively. We know that Texas, last year we assumed it, and there were times where they showed it. Unequivocally, it's the truth. Texas can stop people's running games, shut people's running games down, playing with light boxes. Devondre Sweat and Byron Murphy are that good at point of attack. Jalen Ford's that good. So they, they can do that. My question, Rod, it, it's kind of – this to me is the challenge for Pete Kwiatkowski in this game. You know you're probably going to have to do most of your pressuring of Michael Penix and trying to get him uh, – trying to get him off the spot by using pressure, just rushing four and not bringing an extra defender uh, on a blitz – but I think at the same point, like you'd be hamstringing yourself knowing that between Anthony Hill, Ryan Watts, Jade Barron, I don't think I'm leaving anybody out. Maurice Blackwell, I'll throw him in there too. Some of your second level defenders are some of your better blitzers. In other words, I don't think you can stay in a static defense the entire game and expect to win this game. You're going to have to bring extra bodies at Penix at times. I think who it is, when it happens, 
that to me is the interesting part for PK to figure that out because again, I as good as good as your front is, I just think this Washington offense is too good for you to just expect to be able to stay in a static front and go win this ball game. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, I don't think you can stay in the static front or uh, in your static disguise uh, pre-snap either. I think you have to show Michael Penning something different pre-snap than you do post-snap and force him to hold on to the ball just a little bit longer. Um, and if he holds on to the ball a little bit longer, then your rush can get there. If not, uh, you could have very similar results to what you had last uh, time you guys played Washington and he got rid of the football so fast. It was either an incompletion or it was a a completion to you know a receiver that's zero to nine yards right he was mm-hmm. that's where he did most of his damage they didn't complete but one pass uh over 20 yards last time they played texas and they tried i mean through 10 of them they couldn't complete them deep they really didn't do that much damage in the intermediate most of the damage was done in the short in the quick game you want to force him to hold on to the ball you got it's going to be a full team effort you got to show him a different look pre-snap than you do post-snap your corners got to play more aggressive either sitting on some of those routes or coming up and playing press, taking away the easy completions. Um, that also means you're going to leave yourself vulnerable potentially to get taken over the top. Um, and that's that's easy to defend if you have a lighter box, which means you have multiple uh, defenders. You'll probably win the numbers advantage in the passing game with two deep safeties. If not, and you can't win the, 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 the battle up front with a light box, which I think they can, but if they can't do that, uh, then that's going to be trouble because then you're going to leave yourself in one-on-one situations, 50-50 balls against Romo Dunze, and that guy is a problem. And if you mm-hmm. rotate coverage and roll coverage to him, then Jalen Polk or Jalen McMillan, who's another really good receiver, those guys are NFL guys, they could potentially hurt you. So, yeah, it's going to be a chess match, right? It's If you're if you're a PK, you're not going to be able to take away everything at one time. You're going to have to pick and choose when you want to play press, uh, when you want to disguise your coverages, when you want to roll and move the front. And if you play with the lighter box, you can't be playing with, you know, Mo Blackwell and, you know, uh, essentially those the kind of the hybrid looks that you want to play mm-hmm. with Anthony Hill. You can't do that playing with a lighter box all the time because you're going to need run-stopping defenders in your light box. That's kind of the key to it. So you probably want to go as heavy as you can with big bodies, Byron Murphy, Alfred Collins, Tavondre Sweat, and mm. then, you know, even if you're trying to go with a run-stopping uh, front, there are even times you may consider Benda in there just because you want to make sure you can stop the run with your light box and win the numbers advantage in the passing game. So it's going to be all up to PK. And then there are going to be times where they're not going to let you substitute. Um, I, I imagine yep. there's going to be times where I think one of the ways they're going to break tendency is they're going to go up tempo in Texas. Why wouldn't you? And when I would do it, when Tavondre Sweat and Byron Murphy take their breaks, whenever they rest, for some reason, Texas likes to rest both of them at the same time. That's when I'd go up tempo. When they're out, that's your best chance for success. Um, Because when those two guys are in there, it's really going to limit what Washington's able to do on the ground. Yep. And when you look at the way that Texas has been able to get pressure with just four and the lighter boxes is such a big deal because it allocates that extra defender on the back end, like you talked about, Rod, and why you saw even some struggles last year with Penix throwing the ball. And when you look at the Pac-12, like there isn't a D-line even comparable. I mean, there are very few in the country comparable to Texas's. But if you watched any of the ball games, uh, D-lines for, for that they've been going up against in the Pac-12, 
they just can't compare at all. So if Texas is able to con- consistently get pressure with four, which you sort of expect them to, it could be so valuable. And when you look, I broke down the uh, offensive line for Texas and for Washington by looking at, according to PFF, they're allowed pressures by position. And, you know, if you're getting up around 20% or worse, like I remember talking about it in the preseason about last season and how, you know, right guard was a big issue for the Longhorns last season. Well, if you look at Washington this season, Penix is pretty good, just allowing 24.7% of the pressures on him, 24 of the 97 overall, only been sacked five times 15 of which turn into hurry. So he's able to get rid of the ball, even when pressured, which is impressive. But, you know, when you put the Texas O-line and the Washington O-line out there, the Washington O-line has two holes, the right guard, they're low in pressure, 22.7% of the time left tackle at 19.6, which, you know, isn't very good for that supposed to be like, even though it's opposite being a lefty. So it's not necessarily the blind side. That's the side that he can see, but that's almost better if you can see the rusher coming at you. So they have two holes in that line because right tackle allowed only 10.3% center only allowed 9.3% of the pressures and left guard at 16.5 like compared they have three guys over 16 texas only has one allowed pressure on the texas o-line that's at 21.5 at right guard so comparison between o-lines they've been allowing some more pressures and then they're going up against a d-line that's able to get pressures and especially when their weakest spot is at right guard that's interior pressures which even gets their pastor faster which bodes well for texas there there are some there are quite frankly some stupid numbers when we look at the Washington offense. Yeah. I think the one that and Matt, I I Rod, I might have texted you about this. I might have texted us as a group. Matt, I don't know if I texted you individually. But I was trying to look at yards. I'm a bit I'm a big believer in yards before contact per attempt being a, something mm-hmm. that's kind of a telltale stat. In their game against USC, which man that game was it was like a it was like a pinball game going back and forth boom 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 not a defense was optional that night in the coliseum us uh washington 41 carries for 200 yards before contact yeah, that's USC. almost five per carry so to matt's point yeah you saw some defensive lines in the Pac-12. Ain't nothing you've seen this year preparing you for what you're going to see against texas like that's Rod, is that not one of the one of the stupidest stats you ever heard? Of? Like, it's hard to rush for two hundred yards, period, in a game in a in a in a Power Five game. But to do it before contact, that's that's either that's p- both parts really good with your O line and dude, the, the the defense you're playing is. It, it's no wonder that was the last straw for Lincoln Riley that got Alex Finch fired. Yeah, no, it's it, it just shows you that USC wasn't even trying. Yeah. They, basically, even yeah. the scheme the scheme must have had them playing scared so that they could defend all those vertical shots for uh, Washington, and then the players didn't even rally to the football. Um, they just, I mean, just let him run free even before any other dude got to him. I mean, like that's like you said, that's why they ended up getting their defensive coordinator fired. That is brutal. Um, yeah, because that five number that you just said, the 41 for 201 or 200, like if you look at uh, through the first 10 weeks of the season, the worst in the entire country, or you could say the best O-line in the entire country was at 3.92 for us. So like that's blowing that out of the water by more than a yard per play. 
Yeah, uh, I was. Uh, I just. I. I had to like at, do the napkin math like six, seven times because I'm like, I've got to be looking at this wrong, and I'm looking at the PFF numbers. I'm like, no, that's that's what it shows. Is USC was put up to a force the equivalent of wet toilet paper in that game. Um, one other thing though, uh, Rod, we talked a lot about third down last week, and I was looking at a few drives in the Alamo Bowl last year. There were five drives, five double-digit play drives Washington had in that game, three touchdown drives, a field goal drive, and a turnover on downs. Do you realize all 11 of Washington's third-down conversions came on those double-digit play drives? Outside of those five drives, they didn't convert another third down the entire game. Yeah. So basically, and that I think that goes back to your point, Rod, about tempo. I've, I look, man, I – I don't profess to be like this all-knowing guy when it comes to tempo football. But the guys I know who are, the uh, you know, an Art Bryles, a Gus Malzong, a Chip Kelly, guys like that, they always talk about, man, once you get that first first down, now you're going whatever you call your tempo. You call it green, you call it what, you know, lightning, whatever you call it. You're in that, now you're in that tempo, but getting that first first down is the absolute key. I'll use a Sark phrase. That's the key to the drill. When you're talking about being having a tempo offense. That was the case with Washington, man. And I think that's to your point about tempo, Rod. That's one of those deals, man. If you can get that third down conversion, move those chains that first time, then boom, you're in tempo, you're in a rhythm, and you're going. That's pretty much how Washington won that game against Texas last year. Yeah, and like I said, they they're 75th in the country or something like that, like plays per minute. So they don't like to go tempo, mm -hmm. but to win big games, you got to break tendency. I think that'd be a way for them to do it. It is pretty obvious on film that the Texas struggles versus teams who run tempo and up-tempo. Look at two-minute drill situations. That's where their defense struggles. The third down defense, it actually struggles a little bit as well. Teams are converting close to like 43% of third downs in their two-minute drill defense. Go back and look at when teams have to go up-tempo because they're trying to catch up to Texas, who is up yeah. by 20, 21 points. They usually go more of tempo and they have success being able to throw the football against Texas when they go pass first, which is replicating a two minute drill. Any situation like that, which causes a crisis of communication for Texas uh, on defense, forces them to have to communicate in a crisis mode. You're going to, Texas has shown a inability uh, to be able to adapt really well in that situation. And I think that's where Washington might try to break tendency. And you've combined that with the way they converted. I'm sure if you watched those conversions and you saw how they converted, most of them inside breaking routes, most mm -hmm. of them targets to bunch formations. That's how they converted last season when they played Texas. They were over 80% conversion rate, 50% conversion rate, targeting inside breaking routes and targets to bunch formation. On money downs, third and fourth downs, Texas has struggled with those uh, same concepts all season long. On money downs, when opposing quarterbacks are targeting them, starting quarterbacks converting at a 50% clip and over a 70% clip uh, all season long against Texas defense, targeting bunch formations and inside breaking routes on money downs. It's on film this season. It's on film from them from last season. I think, as you pointed out, combining the tempo with that, that's where Texas, they got to find an antidote. They got to figure that out because mm -hmm. if I'm Washington, that's where I go early and often. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're down into such the nitty gritty with a game like this, that uh, substitution patterns and how you mix it up. Like there might be times 
where, you know, just so you don't get, for lack of a better term, caught with your pants down in a tempo situation, you might try to mix it up where you say, hey, um, and it's up to Bo Davis and PK to figure it out. Hey, when we pair Alfred Co or Vernon Broughton with Byron Murphy, uh, that that's an effective tandem for us. You know, we need to make sure that, you know, th those guys are together. In other words, you got to try to mix it up. You, you, you can't protect them the whole game, but yeah. you can work that defensive tackle rotation enough to where you can limb, you can keep Murphy and Sweat on the field uh, without get, hopefully getting caught in a situation where neither of them are on just by figuring out what groups work the best. And to me, like Rogers off the top of my head, I would think like, like a broad, just to kind of get a size guy and a, and a speed guy. If you've got like a Broughton Murphy pairing or a sweat, uh, a sweat Collins pairing or sweat and Jare Bledsoe, however you want to do it, you just got to make sure that you're in a position where at least one of those guys is on the field as often as possible. I totally agree. So that's that's where we're at. We're, we're, we're talking about we're talking about substitution patterns, man. That's that's the fun stuff we're talking about well, with this it, game. It could, it, that could end up determining again. We think I think we we all believe that the matchup is that tight potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that's where, you know, we always talk about, you know, like uh, Sark's a guy that likes to play his best players. And it sounds like such a simple concept, but like something as simple as uh, being too cute with your substitutions can get you caught into, say, a string of five or six plays if the opposing team likes it. And they can just keep one of your best guys off the field. And we normally talk about that in an offensive situation because you want it to pay out that way. But, you know, it's the same difference when you're talking about on defense and that's where having a guy like say a sweat that's one of the best run stoppers but also gets pressure of the middle and can be a good pass rusher and same with Murphy like they aren't deficient at one or the other so you don't first off tip your opponent as to what your defense is maybe gearing towards on a play when you have those guys on the field, but then you can't get caught in a scenario that's disadvantageous for you and it keeps your best players off the field. Man, random bowl season thought, fellas. I got the Gator Bowl on in my hotel room while I'm recording this. Kate uh, Klubnik looks like a dude that's going to need a vacation whenever this Clemson season's over. Like, that dude looks like he just needs to, man, get, I don't know, go to Cabo for a week. Just get away from football. Just get as far away from football as you can. That's uh, We've seen some Texas teams like that where you're just ready for the season to be over. It's not that way with Texas this year, but that's just rando observation by myself. Let's talk about the Texas offense against the Washington defense. And, uh, you know, Rod, Rod I'll, I'll go to you. Um, I, I'm pretty critical of this Texas offensive line. I feel like I view that group through a critical lens, and I'm I'm reluctant to give that group praise maybe when it's warranted. But I look at that group and say, you know what? Uh, during the back half of the season, Quinn, Quinn got kept upright for the most part. Uh you've managed to still be able to run the ball well enough to keep the necessary balance for an RPO offense without Jonathan Brooks. Uh, you, you've been able to craft an identity running the football uh, without, and I'm not saying it's an elite identity, but it is an identity running the football without Bijan and Roshan and having a physical edge. I, I don't think I've given this Texas offensive line, maybe, you know, I'm not saying it's an elite group, I don't think I've given this group enough credit, though, for the strides they've made collectively. Yeah, that's fair. I agree with you on that. I mean, I think that's could be the case for all of us, right? That 
that group has shown that they can keep a consistent level of performance in the running game, even when Jay Brooks, a elite talent, goes down. And not saying those other guys aren't elite, but they're in, uh, you know, Cedric Baxter's inexperienced, Jaden Blue's inexperienced, and yet uh, those guys come in as competent running backs, competent and capable running backs, and they can have 100-yard performances behind that O-line, their run blocking. Pass blocking, I mean, Texas, in terms of power five, you're talking about, uh, I, I think they're top five and fewest mm-hmm. pressures allowed in the power five. I mean, that's that's a pretty good group. I mean, they don't, uh, yeah. they're not very leaky. Uh, as a as a offensive line, so I I think yeah you're right. This this offense overall, they do have their kind of standout performers. Uh, we talk about them all the time, even on the offensive line with Kelvin Banks. But as a unit, and that's usually how you judge an offensive line. Um, man, they they have very few bad performances this season, and they have I think been on a linear path of improvement. We haven't seen much rock. They they started out rocky actually just in the season. I mean, Rice yeah. was one of those rocky performances. Um, I want to say since then though, they've been pretty steady. Mm-hmm. Yep, and across the board, yeah. If you look at some of the individual players, I pulled out some grades which were pretty impressive. Whenever you look at in the different schemes of runs and zone blocking scheme and run the run game. Christian Jones, actually, when you go and look at guys that have played 375-plus run-blocking snaps, so those are the guys that are like your every-down starter guys and filters out like your backups. He's sixth in the country in the sixth-best zone-blocking grade for run-blocking at 81.6 of all tackles in the country. And I don't think that's really been you know, mentioned enough, like when you have a guy that can be that elite at a certain skill, because overall, if you look at the best gap, blocking guy on the team that's Kelvin Banks Kelvin Banks grades out above average at both but if you look at just overall run blocking grade Christian Jones is a 73.8 and Kelvin Banks is a 68.5 both well above average but when you look at zone blocking scheme like you have Jones at a 81.4 Jatavian Sanders is second best on a team on the team at 68 and then Hayden Connors at 66, Kelvin Banks at 65.2. And then, you know, you have DJ Campbell at 61.9 and AD Mitchell and Worthy at 61.4 and 60.8, both above Jordan Whittington, which I found pretty impressive. And Worthy actually grades out as your second best on gap scheme runs. So he's sort of just blocking man to man outside, but at a 63.8. So when you have actually your wide receivers grading out above average, and then you have one of the best guys in the country in the zone blocking scheme that Texas has ran a little bit more zone runs than gap runs overall. And then that isn't even your left tackle, who's overall your best offensive lineman. That's a good thing to couple with, say, the stats Rod just brought up and how you haven't been able to give or you haven't given up much pressures. If you go across the board, left tackle banks to be at 13.8% of the allowed pressures, according to PFF, 125 or 12.3% to left guard. And then right tackles at 12.3, another good one for Jones. And then you have center at 15.4. And then right guard still has been the weak spot in the pass blocking at 21.5% of them. But overall, very above average offensive line. Uh, Rod, going back to what you were talking about, the, the, the thing I, I – and this may be what you're talking about. It may not be, but I found this from PFF. Uh, looking at pass blocking efficiency as an offensive line, uh, Texas – 485 uh, attempts 
uh, or opportunities uh, in pass blocking situations for the line. 56 pressures allowed. It's weighted towards sacks. They've given up 10 sacks. It's a pass blocking efficiency rating of 93.2. Uh, that's tied for third in the country. Only Oregon and UTEP, of all teams, have been a more efficient pass blocking offensive line than this Texas offensive line has this year. Yeah, but that ties to Quinn and Quinn's ability to get the ball out on time in the offense. You know, like the offense all together just working so well together. Hey, Rod, I do want to uh, shout out your uh, your era of Texas football because I saw a clip on Twitter the other day, and I, I, I quote tweeted and said, man, watching, uh, watching Antoine Kirk Hughes and Matt Trissel lead the way for Ivan Williams to score a game-winning <laughs> touchdown. It's one hell of a trip through a Texas football time machine. It was a it was the winning touchdown in the uh in your holiday bowl win over over Rick Neuheisel in Washington back in two thousand one. Bro, that is old school right there. <laughs> Matt Trissel reference. <laughs> and my man, man Ivan Williams. Yeah, they're yeah, very man. different, very different brand of football we was playing back then. <laughs> yeah, different. those running backs. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't even know who recruits those kind of running backs anymore, like Ivan Williams. And Ivan Williams returned kicks for like multiple years for the team too. That's that's what I, that was crazy. That was crazy. That that was probably a miscalculation by the coaches. Can we agree? Yeah. They just wanted a guy that could take a bludgeoning, so they put Ivan back there. That was a tough running back. <laughs> you know, Rod, Rod, you you played with and against some damn good receivers, not just in the Big Twelve, but but bowl matchups too. I think the one guy you played against that. I I never I never understood why he wasn't a better NFL player was Reggie Williams. I just remember Reggie Williams in that holiday yep. bowl. Like I didn't see anybody uh go after the go after you guys as a secondary and succeed at the clip Reggie Williams did. And I'm like, damn. And it's not like it's not like Cody Pickett was dropping dimes. Let's be honest. I mean, a lot of that was Reggie Williams climbing the ladder. Uh I just I don't know, Rod. I thought he was damn good, and I know uh, you know you'd probably like to forget about Reggie Williams, but that's a guy that when I look at him, I'm like, man, how is he not like a a ten year NFL veteran that that made a couple Pro Bowls? Yeah, man. Some people say the same thing about you know a lot of a lot of receivers like that, man. Those big guys like that. Sometimes it translated, and sometimes it just it just didn't. They just didn't have yeah. the separation in the league. Jeremy Stevens too, uh, that tight end. Like you talk about a dude that what was Jeremy Stevens like six seven, like two hundred and sixty pounds, and and could run. Uh, he, he he at least lasted. Yeah, he he got some run in the league, but not like I look at that dude. I'm like, man, that I go, why can't Texas get a tight end like they look like that guy six seven two sixty and can friggin' run? But uh, that's a, actually Texas fans. That's a good. That's a good. Uh, if you want some some Texas UW prep and just want to lose yourself that 2001 holiday bowl ride. If nothing else, that's a, I'm sure it was a nightmare to play in as a defensive back, but going back and watching it as a fan, that's a, that was a hell of a game, man. Yeah. I think it kind of ended up having like an old shootout feel, right? It's a good game. Mm -hmm. Yep. No doubt. No doubt. Um, all right. That's enough for me. Waxing poetic about Matt Trussell and Antoine Kirk Hughes paving away <laughs> for Robin Williams to score a touchdown. Uh, we keep talking. Let's talk. We talk about the, uh, the again the Texas offense against the Washington defense, and uh, when you know, how do you guys view the line of scrimmage advantage? Because Matt, you and I, we, we shared some numbers about 
uh, yards before contact allowed and success rate for for UW stopping the run and and we you know we've looked at a couple of different things. I to me this is me. I if Texas has advantages in this game on paper, like third down defense is one of those, red zone defense is one of those. Um, I think Texas has the line of scrimmage advantage in this game. If Texas is going to win this game, those advantages at the end of the day need to be clear, uh, you know, unequivocal wins for Texas. And I'm not expecting Texas to go roll Washington off the ball, but you got to be able to just at least establish some semblance of a run game. I feel like at this point, the run game is creative enough, and we've seen Sark and Kyle Flood come up with enough creative stuff in the run game that if if they can't run the ball effectively enough to get the kind of balance that they need to make the whole thing work, I will be greatly disappointed if that doesn't happen. Again, I'm not saying they need to rush for 300 yards, but we can't get to the end of this game and say, man, they, they couldn't bust a grape running the ball because if that's the case, Texas is not winning this ball game. Yeah, I agree with that, but I I think Texas should come out throwing the football. I, I, I do. I think they should, I think they need to throw on early downs. Uh, you got to stay ahead of the chains versus Washington. That The one down yeah. defensively where they, they really make a lot of plays, um, they really get exotic, is third down, third and long specifically. And you got to make sure you're not in third and long. First downs, the defense gives up a lot of yardage. Uh, over 66% completion percentage, over eight yards per attempt allowed, 148 passer rating uh, for them on first with their first down defense, 10 touchdowns against them. They've only got two interceptions on first down. Texas' best passing downs are first and second down, mm-hmm. almost uh, nine and over nine yards per attempt on first and second down throwing. That's their weakest uh, passing down defense. It's your best pass down defense. The best aspect of their defense is actually their rush defense. They're really good there. I would like to keep them on their heels um, when I'm running the football and not let them know when I'm running the football, which is on early down. So I know it actually go. It actually kind of falls in line with Sark's philosophy anyway. He wants to throw the ball early, and he wants to open up with the pass and pass to open up the run. I think that would be perfect in this game because if you get a third and seven-plus yards to go, um, Texas conversion rate drops to around 32% conversion rate. Washington's third down defense, third and seven plus third and long, 48% completion percentage allowed, 65 pass rating, zero touchdowns allowed in that situation. Um, they got six interceptions in that situation. They're just really good there, and they're, they're one of the top teams in the country in simulation pressures, uh, and they usually do that on – uh, third down, they get you in third and long or predictable pass situations. And also, you got to stay out of predictable passing situations, mm-hmm. which are third and long because of Braylon Trice. He's a monster. I, I, you know, Texas, I know they got a plan for him. They had a plan for him last year, and he had two sacks and two tackles for loss. Um, out, out of all the first round defensive ends that Texas played last season, they played Will Anderson, they played Will McDonald from uh, Iowa State. They played Felix Anidiki Ozoma. They played uh, Tyree Wilson. That's four. Hell, if you include Dallas Turner from Alabama, who might get drafted in the first round this year, I mean, that would be five. And Braylon Trice had more tackles, more sacks, and more tackles for loss than all of those players when he played Texas. He had more sacks than all of them combined. So he had more success versus Texas offensive line than any other first-round defensive end that was chosen last season, and there were 
four of them, five of them actually. Yeah. I mean, this guy is the real deal. Led college football in pressures last year. You do not want to be in a predictable pack situation against this dude because I do believe he has the goods to be, just beat Texas best one-on-one. Yep, and you said it right there. You don't want to be in the scenarios where your offense is in obvious passing down scenarios or you want to be able to have the whole playbook open, and that's why that early down, throwing on first down, like you said, is so big. If you look at Washington's defense early downs EPA, they're 73rd in the country. You know, Conversely, the Texas offense on early downs is a top-20 team. They're ranked 17. Now, the Texas – Defense is very good on early downs. They're a top 25 team. So that's the one difference where early on, if you can win those early downs, it's so key because it really sets up if you can pin your ears back on third down and come at the quarterback or if you're going to be able to have the whole playbook open, which keeps the play action there, which is so key. And like when you look at specifically the Washington defense, because if you're able to be successful on early downs, it's going to get you into those third and short scenarios, which are convertible. And like where you look on a per play basis, you know, Washington against the pass, according to EPA per play being 16th in the country is good. But when you look at the run defense, you know, the per yard metrics are show Washington being very good. But when you look at EPA, which say values a three yard run, limiting them to that on a third and four is so much more valuable than a three yard run on third and 10, which is totally pointless. And if you look at that value metric, Washington's run defense is just middle of the road on a per play basis at 65, 65th in the country. And then the keeping them off schedule, the run defensive success rate, I brought it up last week, 117th in the country mm-hmm. at 47.8% of the time, the opposing team's able to stay on schedule whenever they're running. And that's why you end up seeing their overall net points per drive be something is ranked as 77th in the country, according to Stats of War on Twitter, or their points per echo, which is the inside the 40, how many times you get a first down or get a touchdown, they're ranked 100th in the country. And that's because when you have a really bad defensive success rate, they're middle of the road passing 67th, 117th though against the run. If you can't get those stops on third down, it really does hurt you. So that's why you see their overall EPA per rush a little bit lower than their per yard rankings. Because if you look at just the raw numbers, Washington, they really limit big time run plays. Like if you look across the country, they gave up 55, 10 plus yard runs. That's 50th, 20 plus yard runs, only seven allowed. That's eighth in the country, 30 plus yard runs. That's three. That's 16th in the country. The 40 plus yard runs, Two, that's 23rd. So they're really good at limiting big runs in the run game, but they aren't very good at stopping you when you need to be stopped on short down and distance, which may in the run game be even more valuable because the Texas passing offense is when you get that explosivity and get going. That That's Rod, I'll only counter your point by saying that's just my, my meatheadedness coming out. Uh, did, did I text you guys and, and look, I am a sicko, but I I watched a couple of weeks ago the Division II national championship game between Colorado School of Mines and and Harding. Uh, I don't don't, don't remember if I texted you guys or not. I got a text from my high school offensive line coach who said, 
hey, the wing tee is alive and well. Go watch Harding. And I just, <laughs> there was other stuff going on. I was like, I'm watching. I'm locked in. I'm like, man, I, I dig a, a team that's going to run for the first, uh, I think they're the first college football team at any level to rush for 6,000 yards in a season. They're not big wow. fans of the forward pass. Oh, Hell yeah, man. The wing tee is alive and well in Division II football. So that's just my, my old meat-headed stubbornness uh, coming through. I, I want to end with this. Is there, First off, is there anything else from an offensive standpoint that you guys think is worth pointing out? Uh, I, I've talked about this a lot, so I won't belabor the point. But, uh, you know, for me, the evolution of Quinn Ewers started in this bowl game last year. Talking to Quinn about it today, he said it was really bowl prep last year. When it's one of those chicken or the egg things, like what really happened first. But Quinn said that was when he really felt dialed into what Sark wants this offense to be. He realized, man, checking the ball down is a good thing. Uh, you know, the short passing game is a good thing. You don't need to try to hit the home run every play. And you come off a Big 12 championship game where a lot of his work was done nine yards and back, a lot of screen passes, flares, swings, perimeter stuff, things like that. Um, a lot of that started against Washington. Quinn's patience is going to be key. His decision-making is going to be key. I just think it's cool that now that it's kind of come full circle, here he is now with a chance to get Texas to a national championship game, uh, kind of where – he really kind of accelerated his development. That's the only other thing I wanted to say, but Matt, Rod, the floor is y'all's. If y'all want to say anything else about the Texas offense before we wrap this thing up. I got some stuff real quick if we're going to go on the receivers because uh took a look. You know, I've been mentioning that Texas against man had been struggling and that could have been the root of some of the issues in the go in the red zone. But the more I looked at every single player on the roster, I think it's more of a fabric of understanding what you're facing because in zone coverage, Worthy, AD, and Whittington drastically better than they are against man. And once I realized that when I looked at every single running back in a tight end, Jatavian obliterating against man much better than against zone. Same with Gunnar Helm goes from from 0.77 yards per outrun against zone to 2.28 against man. Baxter against man, 1.19. Uh, Blue, 1.92. Keelan's three yards per outrun against man, all or below one yard to one and a half against zone. So when you look at it on paper, it sort of made me realize, man, I really think this is more of Quinn's decision-making and understanding, okay, I got a linebacker or a safety man-to-man -man against Jatavian or my running back out of the backfield. I don't need to force it in against coverage. I, I can go and get what we need in front of us, and it's why literally all the running backs and tight ends are much better against man. All the receivers, not as good against man, but so much better against zone, and that's because if you're on the same page as your quarterback against zone coverages, you can really get the yak. It's what Debo Samuel does on the 49ers. You can go across. It's Devonta Smith's role when he was with Sark. It's the same role when he's right now up in field. Uh, Gabe Davis is the zone guy for Buffalo. So I really think it's not necessarily that the Texas guys can't get open against man. It's because the decision making, you're going to the more sure thing against man coverage. And that's running backs and tight ends against linebackers and safeties. And then since I was digging into those great, numbers that's cool. real quick. That's a great point, Matt. I just want to stop you and just say that's that's good stuff, man. That is a, 
That is great research right there. It literally took me to chart out every player on the team to notice that that's a direct pattern. And then, though, I wanted to look in to see which DBs are good. We were talking briefly before it. I didn't know that Manny Muhammad's cousin literally is Jabbar Muhammad. It makes total sense, though, because on paper, Jabbar Muhammad is elite. He gives up a 52 NFL passer rating against me and 57 against zone. Like, He's had been targeted 21 times for only nine receptions for 93 yards against man. If you look at overall this season, he's only given up one touchdown. He's picked off the ball three times. But who do you want to pick on? Well, that's going to be Elijah Jackson. Elijah Jackson, again, man coverage, 127.2. That's the against man, the NFL passer rating, 15.5 per reception targeted every five coverage snaps or 5.7 and then against zone it's over 100 also 105.6 against zone nfl passer rating and 18.8 per reception so it doesn't matter man or zone elijah jackson's getting torched because they aren't going after manny muhammad's cousin so look for number 25 on the field for texas to target in the third corner that comes in a lot also that's Thaddeus Dixon he's average in man coverage 86 and a half but 120.7 against zone their linebackers and safeties are pretty good the only maybe weak spot would be Tuputala that'd be a linebacker he's over 80 in the 90 in zone but everybody else they got really good coverage safeties and linebackers but a glaring weak spot in Jackson in the secondary uh, Rod, somebody reached out to me and said uh, they couldn't wait to hear what Barbers had to say. So um, <laughs> you want to you want to go find their alter ego, Rob, Rob Barbers? Um, <laughs> I, I'll get, I, you got the floor, Rod, for the for the parting shot for our Sugar Bowl preview. Uh, well, I think for uh, the offense uh, for Sark, I, I think he's got to make sure that he gives himself you know, a, a lot of creative uh, options. The last, last time they played Washington Alamo Bowl, I mean, the offense just wasn't very creative. It wasn't. It just schematically did not seem to give Texas a any type of X's and O's schematic advantage. Um, there was no, there were no two, two back sets at all. No pony packages at all in that game. And I know post B. John Rojo, um, you know, people, he might've questioned whether that package would be effective. We know now, it still is effective. It's actually more effective. It's your most efficient, effective, and explosive personnel grouping has been for the last two years. Um, so if I don't see it in this game just because Jay Brooks is out or whatever, I'd be disappointed because you didn't see it last season, even though Sark said before the, the, the game that all three running backs were going to play. Um, there was no 6-0 line package when Braylon Trice is, you know, obviously wreaking havoc and making a lot of plays. Um, a sixth offensive lineman may help you block one of the best defensive ends in the country, uh, especially on passing downs. If you want to take those vertical shots down the field, um, you didn't see any of that. Uh, so he, it, for some reason, I think, and maybe because without Bijan Rojo, he kind of lost the muse that gave him, uh, you know, a little creative, uh, you know, if you look at it, kind of the, the fire starter, if you will, gave him that creative spark. Um, but in this game, he's got his full complement of weapons, except for Jay Brooks. I want to see the creativity from Sark. I don't think we saw enough of it. There was some sprinkled on that game plan, um, but I don't think we saw enough of it versus watching the first time around. Um, that's what I would like to see. I think he's got to be the one. Even Quinn admitted in the Oklahoma State game that it was the synchronicity between him and the play caller that really led to him having 
his best performance as a quarterback. Um, once again, I think Sark's got to go out there, and we know he's capable of it. I think Sark's got to go out there and give them another advantage in this game, and that's the schematic one. Uh, that wasn't the case last time they played Washington. And one other thing I wanted to squeeze in before we wrap out that I didn't include before while we're on the subject is I've charted out at least the last seven games for the Washington defense and their blitzes have been ineffective. Quarterbacks passer rating has been much, much better. It's actually across the board. Six of the last seven games, the much better and effective passing game when blitz than when not blitz. So the blitz is not getting home. The only quarterback that was better when not blitzed was Bryson Barnes for Utah, and he's a backup that was just thrown in that day that you could almost throw that game out. But against Knicks, against Cameron Ward, against DJU, against Caleb Williams, against Daniels, against Borquette, all of them much better against a blitz. So if they're bringing those blitzes, and we've known Quinn, 108.5 passer rating against the blitz there this season, NFL passer rating, he's been very good. So that might be a good sign for Texas. The only thing else I got to say, guys, is I remember us doing a podcast remotely uh like we're doing we're having to do right now uh on a, on on the sun the sunday the day after sark was hired doing a podcast and discussing everything kind of immediate reactions on the hire this is why you hired to get you in a college football playoff semifinal he's going head to head with a guy that i think is freaking brilliant and Caitlin DeBoer and Rod to your point I think that's that's apropos it's a great way to end the podcast can Sark be that guy that wins the chess match can Pete Kwiatkowski win the chess match if they can we we agree a lot of things equal your coach is pushing the right buttons on game day is one of those things that's going to tip the scales one way or the other and this is what you hired Sark for to be a guy that can give you that advantage in these kind of games for that staff to be able to give you that kind of advantage in these games. I'm hellaciously excited about it and I can't freaking wait until Monday. Um, I'm pumped and ready for it. And uh, gentlemen, wherever you are, you are watching it. Uh, may we all enjoy uh, Texas being in the national championship mix. At least we got before. I don't know when long blitz is going to end. Hopefully many years from now, but at least before the end of this podcast and the lifetime of this podcast, we get to talk about a team playing in the college football playoff. That is beautiful. Right. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. That's uh, that's going to do it. That's going to do it for us for this episode and for the calendar year of 2023. So we'll see you in 2024. Uh, thank you, everybody, for your support of the podcast. We would not be here without you. And looking forward to another great year uh, of the Longhorn Blitz with Matt and Rod. Wouldn't have it any other way with any other team doing a podcast talking Texas football than with these two guys. With that said, it is time to put this one to bed. Matt, thanks for everything, man. You're more than welcome. Rod B., as always, appreciate the time and the knowledge. Anytime, brother, anytime. For Matt, for Rod, for everybody at the 24-7 Sports Podcast Network, the Horns 24-7 Podcast feed where you get Longhorn Blitz each and every week by simply subscribing. Search Horns 24-7 anywhere you get your podcasts. Click that follow button whenever you see it. You get the feed and you get the Blitz whenever it drops. And thanks to Matt, get all of our archives, our classic interviews and shows are available on the Longhorn Blitz SoundCloud page. Yep, just type in Longhorn Blitz. For the Horns 24-7 family, for the Longhorn Blitz family, I'm Jeff Howe. Thanking you so much for downloading and listening, and we will catch you again on the next episode.